been spending the month of August in the book of Esther. We haven't been reading from the beginning to the end, but instead looking at the four main characters. The first week, we looked at King Xerxes. Last week, we looked at the title character, Esther herself. This week, we will look at Haman. And next week, we'll conclude this series with the character Mordecai. Now, the book of Esther itself tells of a story that gives reasons for why the Jewish people celebrate a certain holiday, Purim. It's a time of the year where they come and remember this story, and they have a big party, lots of feasting, and they remember this time when they were oppressed and away from their homes, and they found freedom and escape, and they celebrate it every year. And one of the traditions that they hold in Purim is that they read the story out loud, beginning to end. And when the reader says the name Haman, everybody in the congregation boos and hisses at his name. You know, they do this because he's the bad guy. So one time this morning, I want us to all together boo his name like I'm introducing the rival lineup for your favorite team. Can we do that? On three. One, two, three. Haman. Boo. Feels good to get that out of your system, right? Yeah. I don't encourage you to do that on a normal Sunday. But with that out of our system, may we now listen to Haman's story with a new awareness of his complex nature. And may we be open to hearing his story Haman's presence in the story of Esther can be read in chapters 3, 5, 6, and 7. He's introduced as son of Hamadatha the Agagite. This means that if we did an origin story, we would go back in scripture and in time to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15. There we would find the people of King Agag at war with King Saul and the Israelites. Saul was expected to wipe out King Agag and his people. And there was a bitterness between these two nations that stretched all the way back to the time when the Israelites left Egypt. However, instead of killing King Agag, Saul took him prisoner and plundered everything that was to be destroyed. This is what cost Saul his crown. And this solidified the lasting feud between the Agagites and the Israelites. So in Esther, when the bad guy is introduced as an Agagite, we should know that he has some deep-seated prejudice against Jews, the people of God. Right after being introduced as a descendant of King Agag, Agag, Haman is pronounced by King Xerxes to be the second most powerful person in all of Persia. Along with this promotion comes some pretty sweet new job perks. Every time he goes into the city, there's now somebody walking with him, announcing his presence. And when the people hear that Haman is coming, they are to stop what they're doing, turn and face him, and pay honor and homage to him. To bow before him. Except there's one of the king's officials who refuses to do this and passes by. Mordecai. 
know from earlier in the story that this is Esther's cousin and adoptive father. And it's revealed to Haman that Mordecai is a Jew, the sworn enemy of his ancestors. What does Haman do? He draws up a plan to manipulate the king into helping him get rid of Mordecai and all of the Jewish people. In fact, Haman says to the king, there is a certain people dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not follow your laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king and ministers of Esther. The king thinks this offer over, and he tells Haman, keep your money. And instead, he hands over his signet ring, giving Haman the authority of the king himself. And in this move, King Xerxes is saying, you have the power of the throne behind you. And you can put my mark on anything if it is done. So Haman's plan is put into action, not only with the king's permission, but with the king's blessing. A plan to eliminate Mordecai and all the Jewish people from the Persian Empire. But when Mordecai and Esther hear of this decree, they decide that they cannot simply sit by and allow this to happen. At great risk to herself, Esther approaches the king's throne uninvited, receives his favor, and invites him and Haman to dinner. She knows that if she is to get anything, she has to play the game of politics too. So after the first dinner, she tells the king and Haman, if you come back tomorrow, I'll see you again, and then I will let my request really be known. Following this first night of great feasting and dining together, King Xerxes and Haman, neither are able to go to sleep. Surprisingly enough, their thoughts are focused on the same man, Mordecai both with a different version of how to lift him up. King Xerxes learns Mordecai was responsible for revealing the assassination plot against him and is moved to honor him in some way. On the other side of town, Haman is at home with his wife and friends bragging about his accolades, his access and his time with the king, all the while seething underneath that Mordecai is not his usual respectful dude-killer. So what advice does Haman receive? Put up a pole 75 feet tall, and tomorrow have the king grant you the right to impale Mordecai. This idea excites Haman, knowing that the king has granted him access to his signet ring. Why should he doubt Xerxes would deny him this? He hurries back and enters the king court early in the morning, just as the king is trying to figure out how to honor the man that saved his life. Before Haman can get his request out, though, the king intercedes. And I'm going to ask that we flip over to this next scene right in front of us. Thank you. Sorry about that. The king asks, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Certainly the king can only want to honor one man, and that would be me, Haman thinks to himself. 
with this in his mind, Haman makes the suggestion, put this man in a royal robe. Bring out one of the fine horses from the stables and parade this man around town and have one of the princes proclaim as they walk through the city streets, this is what is done for a man that the king delights to honor. I wonder if Haman was able to pick his jaw up off of the floor when the king said, go at once and do all of this for the man named Mordecai, the Jew. In absolute horror, Haman must have carried out this plan of honor. He had entered the king's court bloated with pride only to return home deflated by humiliation. It is in this moment with his wife that Haman may have received sound advice about how his plans could never certainly succeed against the man of Jewish origin. But as fate would have it, before he can process this pearl of wisdom, he's whisked away by the king's men for another night of dining with Esther and the king. It's at this meal that Esther reveals her intentions for inviting the king and Haman. And with a bit of dinner theater, not only does she reveal that she is a Jew, but she reveals that Haman has made this decree that puts her and her people in danger and in harm's way. This is the beginning of the end for Haman's story. In an act of ironic justice, the king has Haman humiliated once more for impaling him on a gallows meant for Mordecai. When we reach Haman's demise, do you feel sorry for him? Or do you see the ending as poetic justice? From a literary perspective, I love the twists and the turns of the book of Esther. The story is dripping with irony. And after all, in the decree that Haman issued, he was only trying to do to the Jewish people what the Israelites had done to his people generations ago. But as we listen to Haman's story, what parts of his nature stood out to you? Was it his ambition? His self-serving nature? His tendency to brag? His isolation? Maybe Haman felt as though no one else could be honored without taking honor away from him. Maybe Haman was convinced that he could truly be safe unless he was the one with the most power. Haman Maybe Haman thought that his value was found in how important he was to others. Reflecting on Haman on his podcast, Terry Newhoff says, Haman was completely devoted to himself. A life devoted to self ultimately leaves you alone. And Haman was so self-obsessed, so insecure. And I look at him and I wonder, what parts of me are like Haman? and vulnerable question that Terry poses. What parts of me are like Haman? Maybe the parts that stand out to us about him, the parts that make our stomachs turn in disgust, are the parts of ourselves that we recognize in Haman. When I think about Haman, I wonder, what would have been honored for him? Haman is clearly ambitious, and I think he was interested in nothing short having the throne to himself. But what was the point? He talked to his wife and his friends about all that he had accomplished. But who was he really trying to convince? Them or himself of his importance? 
Haman sets out to elevate himself, but in his quest to destroy those who he perceives to be his greatest threat, he ended up hurting no one more than himself. What was it that happened to Haman that drove him to believe that the only way to be safe, the only way to be happy, the only way to be valued was if he was on top? When we take a look at big questions like these, with the Bible in hand, Scripture gives us perspective on two paths for our lives. In the wisdom literature, this is visualized as two paths. One being the path of wickedness that leads to death and destruction, and the other, the path of righteousness that leads to life. Haman's story suggests that to get on top, we have to look out for ourselves first. We need to be more, to be, we need to do more to be more. And we are only safe if we are at the top looking down at everyone else. And where did this approach get Haman? Without community, without culture of support around him, Haman was left looking for validation instead of belonging. He decided that he could only find value in himself if he had the most power, which left him with one motivating question. How do I get there? There's another path in life, though, one of love and belonging. This other path is embedded in the covenant of the Jewish people laid before them time and time again. No matter how many times they veered off course, God sent law, God sent prophets, God sent signposts. And along the way, God sent them avenues to get back on track. God pursued them because their value wasn't earned in what they accomplished, but it was inherent in their creation and in their chosenness. They were given so much in this covenant, and one of the only things that the covenant asked them to do was to be a priesthood to all nations, to show the way to life, and to share where their value had been laid, which was as God's children. So that is the question before us, as it has been in front of all other people generations before. Where does my worth come from? Is it from deep inside of me? From what has been instilled by my creator and the creator of all? Or is my worth dependent upon things in the world around me? Is it dependent upon the number of social media likes I get? the number of acceptance letters to college I receive, the hours I put in at work and the responsibilities that I take on that are extra. Our worth is not in our work. It is not in being a mother or a father, a son or a daughter. No, your worth is not dependent on grades of success or promotions. Your worth was set back at the time of creation and God looked at it all and said, this is very good. Haman experienced the humiliating reversal of being on the saddle only to be sacked as his quest for validation came up against the inherent worth of an entire nation of people. What reversal do you want to experience? What reversal do you desire? And if you need to switch paths, there's no shame in that as our God is one of new beginnings and one who continually offers fresh paths to change course. Are you willing to get out of the saddle of your own life 
and let God be your guide along this path.